Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. Well, if you've got your Bibles, Acts chapter 18, uh, hopefully you're there. We're going we're gonna to jump, uh, jump into our text in, in a moment, but uh, we're, this morning we're talking about uh, the mission in, in Corinth uh, being a mission of, of make it, take it. And, and so growing up playing basketball, I, I, I learned uh, to play every variation of the game of basketball uh, you, you had around the world. You played around the world. You you had you had uh, knockout. There was twenty one. There was horse. There was pig. But if you were playing like a far superior opponent, like you wouldn't play horse or pig. You'd pick a letter, uh, like a, a word that had like fifteen letters in it, just to prolong the game. Uh, but but we uh, we played five on five, played three on three, one on one. But coming up, the one rule that everyone knew, or if they didn't, they weren't a real hooper. Uh, was make it take it right? You always you always play make it take it. Meaning if I if I make this shot, if I make this shot, I get the ball back again. Like I, I get the ball back to shoot again. And so to this day, if a kid on my fourth grade squad at Central Sports, if he snags the ball, uh, you know, after I make a basket, you better believe that he is going to get the business from me, okay? We're going to enter into what's called a, a coachable moment, okay? It's make it, take it. Church, this morning, I want to tell you that the mission in Corinth was, was make it, take it. And, and no, Paul was not playing in the Corinthian uh, Hoops League. Uh, Dr. Naismith would come on the scene just a little bit, a little bit later. But, but Christian, here, here's what I mean by that. I, I believe that... that uh, from Paul's time in Corinth, you can learn, we can learn that if we will, if we will make it about these three things, the three things that we're going to touch on this morning, if you will make it about these three things, you can take the gospel anywhere. You can absolutely take the gospel anywhere, even to a pagan place like Corinth. We'll unpack that in just a moment. Church, I, I believe that if we get dialed in, we can glean insight into why the mission, of Corinth, the, the mission to Corinth was a success, uh, even in spite of the massive spiritual obstacles that this city presented to Paul and his missionary team. If you've ever read through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, uh, you know that like this Corinth was not like the church that had it all together. Uh, this, this was a dark, uh, dark city, a dark place. Uh, so I want to I give you a little bit of background, a little bit of background on Corinth. Uh, last time, I know it's been a minute, but last time we left off in Acts 17, Paul was in Athens. He was in Athens, Greece. 40 miles away was Corinth. And so they rolled into Corinth and Tony Evans said this. He said, Corinth was in the Roman province of Achaia. It was in the southern region of ancient Greece. 
uh, Dr. Evans said Corinth was a significant city along these important trade routes uh, that, that had access to, to all these port cities. It was a, Corinth was a city of lu- like great luxury. It was a city of great affluence. And D.L. Moody said this. He said, Corinth was infamous for more than just its commerce. It was a city, Moody said, of great wickedness. The Acropolis was this high hill about a mile from the city center, and it dominated life in Corinth. Uh, The temple of Aphrodite, the temple to Aphrodite, it stood on top of this hill over the city, about 1,900 feet high. And and D.L. Moody said that at one point, the temple had a thousand cultic priestesses who served as prostitutes, and they would come into the city every night. Every night they would roll into the city of Corinth and they would offer their services so that people could worship Aphrodite. That was Corinth. <laughs> You're like, you think your city has problems, okay? So, so Paul, Paul rolls into Corinth and we're going we're gonna to start in verse 1, but there's three things, three things that I, I believe, again, church, that if we'll make it about these three things, we can take the gospel anywhere. The first is this. We can make tents, but you got to stay tethered to the gospel. Make tents, but stay tethered to the gospel. I want you to look at your neighbor, tell him, tethered to the gospel. Awesome. Look at your other neighbor, tell him, tethered to the gospel. Sweet. So verse 1 says this. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, and recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome because historically there had been an uprising. And he went to see them. Verse 3, And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. They reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and they tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So as you look at verse 2, in Corinth, Paul Paul joined forces with this Christian power couple, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, a couple that we're going to see, you see a number of times throughout the New Testament, not just in Acts, but in, in, in a handful of Paul's letters. And, and the text reveals that Paul was of the same trade as Priscilla and Aquila. And, and, and you may be thinking, man, I thought, I thought Paul was an apostle by trade. Uh, that's true, but apparently uh, apostle didn't always pay the rent or the grocery bill or, or pay for movie night. Uh, And so not only does Paul end up living, he lives with this Christian power couple. He he also labors with them as a tent maker uh, and or or a leather worker. It's interesting that that word for work in the Greek is this word ergazomai, and it means to work, to labor, to accomplish. And in the word, the word church family, it implies exertion. It implies exertion, or, or the, the word that I would use is, is the word hustle, and not like hustle in the Steve, the drug dealer, like my old next-door neighbor hustle, okay? Uh, what, I'm, what I'm telling you is that church, Paul knew what it was to work hard, amen? 
Paul knew what it was to work hard. Tony Morita says this. He said, Paul, like other rabbis, knew how to work with his hands and not just with his mind. Marita said he could make a living in a secular vocation. So often, church family, I'll be talking to a young person or to a student who's feeling called to ministry, and I encourage them to develop a skill set or a practical trade apart from getting that that Bible or youth ministry or Christian leadership degree. And so I'm not I'm not knocking that. I'm not knocking that. I'm I'm pro seminary. I am all for theological and ministry training and development. I'm just saying, I think we need some more folks who run in the same lane as Paul. Amen. I think we need some more folks who run in the same lane as the Apostle Paul. But here's here's the key. Church family, Paul, Paul made tents, but he was tethered to the gospel. He was tethered to the Word of God. He Check this out. He, he had a plan for making cash, but he had a passion for the message of Christ. He had a plan for making cash, but he had a passion for the message of Christ. A couple weeks ago, Stephanie and I, we, we, we were talking with her sister and brother-in-law, AP and, and, and Randy, and we were, uh, they were talking about uh, their uh, a nephew on their side of the family who uh, at ninth grade at his school, at his high school, the, the ninth graders are being strongly encouraged to map out their career path uh, by 14, right? <laughs> at 14, we're telling kids uh, to go ahead and just go ahead and set your professional trajectory, right? Just go ahead and knock that out because, you know, we, we all... Had it figured out at 14, right? Y'all did, correct? No. <laughs> but this is the tragic part about this is that I'm watching as a, as a parent of now teenagers and I'm watching parents get sucked right into this uh, culturally contrived urgency and, and push and we've, we've become okay with urging our teenagers, our, our 14-year-olds toward a career path without asking, man, do they have an urgency for Christ? Do they have an urgency to connect all that they're doing, even their future career, with an urgency for the gospel? Parents, what a reminder. What a reminder. Is your, is your son or your daughter, man, are they, are they tethered to the gospel, the good news of Jesus? Look at verse 4. In verse 4, after making tents, doing the nine to five, making tents, Paul would spend his Saturdays uh, posted up in the synagogue, uh, reasoning. We, we've seen that word before. It's this word dialegomai in the Greek, and persuading. But then in verse five, it says that, that Silas and Timothy, they, they roll onto the scene. We had last seen them in Berea in Acts chapter 17, and they come back. And historically, we know two things. They came back, one, with a good report from the church at Thessalonica, which would have encouraged Paul. But they also came back with financial support from the church at Philippi. So Paul's like, all right, let's go. So Paul gets dialed back in to the main thing. And in verse 5, tells us that from then on in Corinth, he was occupied with the word. 
He was occupied with the word. In the Greek, that word for occupied is the word syneko, and it means to, to seize something. The sense being to be uh, fully engaged or engrossed in something. So Paul, Paul, church, he was engrossed with, he was engaged with the word of God. Amen? You say, well, what does this mean for us? Here, let, let me, let's, let's talk some application right here. Church, for each and, and every one of us, uh, our, our tent making, our quote unquote tent making is, is going to look a, a little bit, it's going to look a, bit, a little bit different for everybody. God calls Christians to be teachers. He calls them to be accountants, engineers, realtors, builders, small business owners, personal trainers, organizational leaders. He calls us to be tradesmen, hourly workers, and in everything, like everything in between. But hear me, church, what, what you do is not who you are. What you do is not who you are. First and foremost, Christian, your identity is in Jesus Christ. It's in Christ alone. So the key is to understand that, that everything you do has got to be leveraged toward the message of the gospel uh, and making much of the Savior, glorifying the Savior, Jesus. And so, Christian, I would just say, here's the application. Are you occupied with the gospel? And, and, and just, to, just to unpack that a little bit more, has, has the gospel seized your heart in a way that drives a burden for others to know and experience the same grace and forgiveness and hope and joy and life that you found in Jesus. Christian, don't, don't, don't fall for the trap. Listen, the, the American dream is a poor substitute for the Great Commission. Let me say that again. The American dream is a poor substitute. May I say poor replacement for the great commission of making disciples of Jesus of all nations. So don't, don't live for a profession. Live to profess Jesus in whatever profession you have. Don't, don't pour yourself in. Because this is the lie of the culture. Don't, don't pour yourself into a career without pouring yourself out for Christ. Second thing this morning is this, as we look at verse 4 through 8, make sure, make sure that your gospel is for all people. Amen? Make sure that your gospel is for all people. I want you to look at your neighbor, tell them all people. Leave your other neighbor, tell them all people. All right, verse 4, we're going to backtrack a little bit. It says, Paul, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade, ready, Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And then they opposed and it reviled him, so he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there. He went to a house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. I love this. His house was next door to the synagogue. And then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, also a, a, a Jew, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believe, were, they believed and were baptized. Church, 
Church family, this is a this is a key emphasis of Acts that is that is too often overlooked. This idea of the gospel being for all people, because we we just we fly through the text like too quickly. We and we we ignore the context. And and, and I'm going to put it this way: the absolute miracle of what was transpiring is Paul was going along sharing Jesus making disciples, planting churches. And it's this, church, Paul preached the message of Jesus to everyone, regardless of social class, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of, of their station in life. See, that Paul's gospel was for all people, Amen. Paul, you look at verse 4, though Paul started again in the Jewish synagogue, this was kind of his strategy as he would hit the bigger, these bigger city centers. But verse 4 references Paul seeking to persuade both, both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 5 states that he was testifying to the Jews that Jesus was their Messiah, that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophets and prophecies. So verse 6 reveals that when opposition uh, and, and reviling, when he, when he encountered opposition and reviling, that, that Greek word for reviling is blasphemeo. So they weren't just blaspheming Paul. They were, make no mistake about it, they were blaspheming Jesus in the name of Jesus. But when that went down, Paul, Paul shakes the hate off. He shakes the dust off and says, from now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Obviously, this wasn't his last time ministering to the Jews. He was just signaling a, a shift in his mission in Corinth. So the very next verse, verse 7, points to the conversion of this guy, Titius Justus, a Gentile worshiper of God. And I love this. I, I love how, look at verse 7. I love how Luke, the author of Acts, just drops this little nugget in here that, that uh, this dude's house was literally next door to the synagogue. <laughs> like, like don't, don't gloss over that. Like, right next door to the you you got to believe this fired up the Jewish leaders. Just, just do me a favor. Step back from the text for just a minute and get that picture in, in, your, in, your, in, your, in your mind. Paul one day is, he's posted up at the synagogue, he's telling them about Jesus, and they just boot him out. They kick him out, and they're like, good riddance, he's gone, man, see you later, Paul. Uh, the very next week, the, the rabbis look over across the street, and there's Paul. <laughs> and he's like grilling out, he's like, hey guys, just flipping some, <laughs> flipping some burgers, uh, and, and, and he's having a little gospel block party uh, with the neighbors sharing Jesus. <laughs> but then in verse 8, like to make matters worse, then the actual leader of the synagogue, Crispus, don't ever name your children Crispus, um, comes, <laughs> comes to faith in Jesus along with his whole family. And so not only is Paul uh, grilling out with the neighbors, now one of the main guys who was leading the synagogue Bible study the week before, now, now he's next door every Saturday as well. He's also hanging out at the gospel block party. Church, the gospel 
is for all people. Amen? And, I, and, and I've said it before. Listen, if you, if you live in, in uh, like rural North Dakota, like a town of like 300 people, like no offense if you're from North Dakota or a rural town of 300 people in North Dakota, uh, ethnic diversity is probably going to look a certain kind of way, right? It's just let's keep it real. Um, it's going to look a certain way. That's okay. But, but understand that in Philippi, and in Corinth and in Ephesus, these were these were diverse city centers. Like one of the things I love about Brian, Brian, Brian is a, a city of diversity. It's not it's not just ethnic diversity, but all types of diversity, socioeconomic diversity. And, and, and I love I love our city. And, and along the way, I've had folks come and try to tell me, uh, hey, listen, Jonathan, if you if you want to build if you if you all are going to build a diverse church, then you're, listen, you're going to have to talk politics every week. Uh, if you want to build a diverse church, like you're going to have to address every social issue and every cultural issue that comes down the pipeline every month. Like You're going to have to go away from the Bible. You're going to have to get a little, you're just going to have to cover topics. And I'm, and I'm saying, no, the gospel of Jesus worked just fine in Acts. The gospel worked great in Acts. And, and, and let me say this, because we, we forget our history because we don't study it. The level, there, there's nothing new under the sun. The, the level of societal dysfunction and ethnic tension and inequality and oppression in the Roman Empire at that time was far worse. Far worse. No, we're... We're going to stick, we're going to let, we're going to lead with the gospel. We're going to lead with the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and raised for all people. I've had, I've had dudes come and, and tell me, hey, listen, you, you just, you need to let the black church reach African Americans. You need to, you need to let the, the Asian and, and Hispanic church uh, reach their people. And I'm saying, are you, ki- are you kidding me? Is that, is that the picture of Acts? When we open up our Bibles, is, is, that, is that really what we see in Acts? Listen, we're, we're, not, we're not going for the white church. It's not what I'm going for. We're not, we're not going for the black church. We're not going for the brown church. We're going for the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? Revelation 7, 9, and 10. And let me tell you why I love this passage. Let me read it. It says this. The Apostle John said, after this, I looked. John's having this vision. The end of time, he says, look, I behold a great. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And here's here's what I love about this passage, Restoration Fam. Notice Notice in Revelation 7 that the distinctions aren't obliterated. What what do I I mean by that? Even 
at the end of time, you can see, yep, different tribes, different people, different, different languages. All those, those distinctions are still there because our God is a creative God. Amen? And even, even at the end of time, it's there, but that's not, that's not their primary identity. There, there is one throne of grace. There is one Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and everybody is rallied around Jesus. Everyone is rallied around the Gospel crying out, salvation belongs to Him. Salvation belongs to the Lamb who was slain for the sin of the world. Amen? We're allowing, we continue to allow these, these ideologies, even in the church, to divide us up and group us up and get us into all these different camps. Church, Paul wasn't... Paul wasn't in a camp. He was with Camp Jesus. Amen? And so the application is simple. The application is, is, is simple. If you, have a, if you have a gospel for some, but not for others, you have a non-biblical deficient gospel. And if you have... If you have a gospel, and it's both ways, if you have a gospel that makes one group jump through hoops that another doesn't have to, or, or if you have a gospel that gives preference to one group while diminishing another, you have a non-biblical deficient gospel. We've forgotten that the gospel is for all people. Amen? Can we just say amen to that? Gospel is for all people. The, the gospel calls all people with, well, listen, with all the distinctions to meet at the foot of the cross, to be reconciled first with Jesus, to be redeemed and to be set free from the power of sin and death. And it's, it's from there, it's only from there at the foot of the cross that we can lock arms and come together. And then from there, we work from a place of biblical reconciliation, not just toward this like uh, humanistic version of reconciliation that is never ending. Listen, there's work to do, amen? There's work to do, but church, we've forgotten that we're working from the cross. We're working from a place of reconciliation. And our gospel is for all people. Third thing is this. As we look at verse 9 through 11, you've got to make up your mind to trust God. You've got to make up your mind to trust God. I want, you, I want you to look at your neighbor, tell him, trust God. Look at your other neighbor, tell him, trust God. So verse 9 says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. See, speculation abounds. There's all kinds of speculation on what led up to the vision of verse 9. Some, some believe that Paul was overwhelmed, that he was burned out, that he was, was pondering backing out. Some say perhaps he was overwhelmed with idolatry of, of Athens. Maybe he was overly shocked by the immorality of, of Corinth. 
We can't say for certain what led up to this divine intervention, this timely intervention of God. But here's, here's what we can ascertain from the text. If God was telling him, do not be afraid, it's clear Paul was afraid. Paul, Paul was afraid. And he, and he said as much in 1 Corinthians 2-3 as, as he's opening the letter in the second chapter. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul's own words. And, and I say that because I think sometimes we can get this superhuman view of Paul and we think of him in these superhuman terms and we think we forget that man, he was just a, he's just a person. Paul was just a, a human like any of us and his struggles are our struggles. And everywhere Paul went, the normal pattern was gospel proclamation followed by persecution. Everywhere he went. It's like, I'm going to tell people about Jesus and then they might try to kill me, right? Which is kind of how it is in a, all over the world. Gospel proclamation followed by persecution, whether a riot whether another imprisonment, a beating, or, or at, at the very least, a verbal berating. And so the cost was great. The cost was great for Paul. In somewhere, somewhere between Athens and Corinth, this, this super missionary started feeling not so, not so super, and he began to lose his nerve. And so discouraged and despondent, Paul's hanging on by a thread. And then God appears in a vision and he just says, Paul, I am with you. Paul, I am with you. Some of you this morning like that, that's it. Like that's, that's what, that's, that's all you need to hear. You need to be reminded, Christian, that God is with you. His presence is with you now. As you go from this place, God said, I am with you. So Paul had the promise of God's presence. I love this. God, God intervenes to reaffirm and, and to reassure Paul. And he says this. He says, no one will attack you to harm you. Now, now let's, let's be good Bible uh, handlers and not bad ones. And this is not a proof text. For all time, for all people. This was God's plan for Paul in Corinth, okay? This was God's plan and promise to Paul in Corinth. For a dude, but for a dude who had been beaten, imprisoned, and left for dead more than once, this, this would have been a great consolation in the midst of some ancient time, anxious times. So know this, church family, know this. Paul, Paul understood if God's presence goes before me, then my life is in His hands. And some of us need that same reminder. If God's presence goes before you, then your life is in His hands. Christian, do you trust that God is with you? Do you trust that God is with you right now? We, we are a... I've talked about this before. We are a Star Wars family, right? It's a problem. <laughs> most, maybe the most famous movie line ever, may, may the force be with you, right? But, but the older you get, the more confusing the idea of the force becomes, right? It's good, but it can also be bad. <laughs> You've you got to use the force, but you've got you to gotta detach yourself from all those, those pesky feelings like anger 
but also passion and love. <laughs> Vader's bad, and he's good. Luke's good. He's whiny, but he's good. Okay? Uh, then he's a crazy hermit. Kylo Ren, definitely bad. Then conflicted. Then he's Ray's boyfriend. Oh, and Ray is Palpy's granddaughter. Sorry if you haven't seen him. <laughs> and apparently they're all one with the force and the force is with them. And church, like, praise God. Like, praise God we don't trust in the presence of a nonsensical, impersonal, passion-penalizing God. Amen? Like, praise God that like, that's, that's not like our force. Like, we trust in the presence of a good and gracious and personal and perfect God. Amen? And just like Israel, Israel at the end of Exodus in Exodus 40, they get to this place where God's glory and His presence rest over the tabernacle. And Israel got to the place where they, they would not move unless the presence of God went before them. See, Israel understood something that the American church has forgotten. And we're, we're weak. We think we're so strong, but we're, we're weak. But our God is strong. And we've forgotten that we desperately need the presence of God. Kent Hughes says this, weakness is the secret strength of God's most effective servants. If you're feeling weak and fearful, praise God. Hughes says, now's the time to speak and not be silent, relying on Him to make His power perfect in your weakness. See, church, God loves to... He loves to use ordinary, imperfect people to accomplish His extraordinary, perfect will. And here's the application. Here's the application. Christian, never forget that your greatest asset is God's presence. Christian, your, your greatest asset is God's presence. And, and in one sense, here's the reality. We looked at this at John 15. Uh, Christian, in one sense, you're, you're untouchable until your mission on this earth is done. And so in light, Christian, in light of God's promises, in, in light of God's presence, have you made up your mind to trust Him? Like Where, where are you walking in fear in anxiety right now? Where are you being silent where you need to raise up your voice and speak and share and proclaim Jesus? See, it was only after walking through this experience that Paul could later tell his, his son in the faith, Timothy, he would say, for God has not given, he's given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And he'd tell Timothy, therefore, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now close, let me close with this this morning and then we're done. As the passage concludes at the end of verse 10. God says, after promising his, his presence and his protection, he says, for I have many in this city who are my people. And I love that. <laughs> Paul didn't know what was next, but you know who did? God did. God, God knows the beginning from the end. God is, God is sovereign 
over salvation. And so church, our role, our role is just to be faithful. Our role is just to stay locked in and dialed in on the mission. Amen. And in the end of verse 10 is a it's a great reminder that wherever you are, wherever you're going, like God is going before you. God is going before you. And, and so I'll, I'll take it back to back to the beginning, back to make it, take it uh, on the basketball court. You you can play change of possession every basket. That's lame. OK, you you can change possession every basket. You can. But in my opinion, it, it removes the reason and the reward for making it in the first place. Church, my my fear, my fear is that we're just continuing to give it back to the culture. Right. The church, we're just continuing to give it back to the culture, allowing the the world and the culture to shape the priorities of God's people. And so the world, the world is now taking it to us. And somewhere along the way, we've forgotten that the mission of the church, the mission of the church is to take the gospel into the world. The mission of the church is to take the good news of Jesus Christ, His righteousness, His sacrificial death for sin, His glorious resurrection into the world, into the dark places, into the brokenness, into the sin-soaked and sorrowed corners. But you can't take the gospel into the darkness if you don't make it about the light of the world, Jesus. So it goes back, goes back to Jesus. It goes back to a personal relationship with Jesus. Our church, our Christian, are you tethered to Jesus right now? Are you abiding in Jesus? Are you tethered to him? Is your is your Jesus for all people? Are you trusting Jesus with your life right now? Are you trusting him? Christian, here's the deal. The ball, the ball is in your court. And it's your move. Y'all pray with me this morning.